I'd love to meet you. Just real quick before I get started, I want to give a quick shout out. A lot of my notes this morning are inspired by Brother Pat Manon and the content that he's been putting on his YouTube page. Uh, right now he's going through a, um, a series on the life of Paul, and so that's all on the, um, the uh, Northwest Arkansas Church of Christ YouTube page. So I'd encourage you to check that out. This morning, I'd like to study with you a topic that I believe is paramount to the future of this church. It is paramount to your Christian walk and to your family's Christian walk. This is something that has been important to God's people for all of creation. And that is the topic of nobility. Are you more noble? What does it mean to be noble? This morning when you hear that word noble, what do you think of? You know, do you think of someone wearing a crown, the royal family? Maybe you think of someone with a lot of money like Jeff Bezos. Maybe you think of the bookstore Barnes & Noble. I know my wife loves Barnes & Noble. I think of the royal family. I think of the Queen of England, right, with her crown. She's got her scepter. She's knighting people. Maybe this morning you think about a king. And he's sitting on his throne making decrees about his nation. Maybe this morning you think of the king of kings, the great I am. This morning I, I'd like you to think about what being noble means to us in our Christian walk. And Luke speaks to this idea of being noble in the book of Acts when he tells us the story of Paul's second missionary journey. And this morning I'd like to do a deep dive with you into that story leading up to this verse here in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They were more noble because they received the word with all readiness of mind search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So what does that mean? They put God and his word first in their life. They made it a point to study and seek out the truths that only God and his word can provide. The truths that lead to eternal life. They were more noble, but why? What gave Paul the idea that nobility is connected with this idea of studying God's word? Well, if you recall, Paul conveys a similar thought in his letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That is why the topic of nobility is important. It's because this scripture that we have, it is the infallible word of God. It is perfect. In the Greek, it is theonoustos, which means it is God-breathed. It is how the Lord communicates with us. It is how he corrects us. And it has been given to us so that we can profit from the study of it, so that we can be made perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But brethren, what we need to understand is that nobility and being furnished unto good works doesn't happen without study and dedication and discipline in God's word. Being noble in your Christian walk is important. It's essential. And after we're through today, I think you'll see that as well. So let's talk about it this morning. Our story starts in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, where Paul and Barnabas have been working in the city of Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And I'll just, for your reference, I'll show you there on the map. And actually, all of Paul's missionary journeys started in the same place, uh, the city of Antioch. And on this second missionary journey, Paul made his way up the coast, and through to his hometown of Tarsus. And then he went over to Derby and Lystra. 
And by the way, Silas is traveling with him as well at this point. And here at Lystra and Derby, they picked up Timothy. Timothy, of course, has been ordained as an evangelist, and he's traveling now with Paul, so it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You know, something neat that we do here at La Prada is the evangelist training program. We try to give young men the opportunity when they get out of high school to travel for a summer with an evangelist. And it's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for growth, and I know there's many in the audience today who participated in that. As you get older, you really start to hold those memories dear. Can you imagine traveling with the Apostle Paul? Those late night conversations over the fire. Those early morning Bible studies over a cup of coffee. Maybe days and days of traveling where you're getting tested and quizzed over scripture. I'm sure it was a great time for Silas and Timothy, but I'm sure it was also very difficult as well. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, some even say that Luke was with them for part of this journey. But regardless, they make their way through this region going into Lystra and Iconium and then into Antioch. And by the way, there's another Antioch right over there. The Bible records that Paul preached all throughout this region of Galatia and Phrygia. He covered that territory. Now, there are a lot of details that I'm just about to skim over. So I would encourage you in your free time, go back through Acts 15 through 17, study it on your own time. But Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, continues on through this region to Troas, where he receives a vision telling him to go into Macedonia. And Brother Brian, thank you for leading that song. That second verse talks about the Macedonian call. Right here is what we're talking about. So Paul gets a vision. They are called over into Macedonia. So their group crosses over the Aegean Sea. They land in Samothracia to Neapolis and inward to the city of Philippi. Now, you might remember that several things take place here. For instance, Paul converts Lydia and her household. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison for casting a devil out of a young slave girl. And then at night, there's a great earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. Their prison bars are, are flown open and their, their uh, chains are, are fall away. And they get out of prison. That's the short version. But nonetheless, that brings us to Acts chapter 17, where our story starts today. And so now we see Paul go throughout that remaining region to Amphipolis, to Apollonia, and then enter into Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, and opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. It was about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the chief city of all of Macedonia, and we learned there was a synagogue there. And the gospel was preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentile, as was with all the apostles, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul took the gospel first to the Jew, and that's why he went to those synagogues. And that opened the floor for Paul or Luke or Timothy or Silas, whoever was there. Paul really took advantage of these synagogue situations, since the Jewish folk had the Old Testament scriptures. And the New Testament was still in the process of being written down. You see, Paul was trained, and he was trained well in the old law. He was trained by the best of the best, Gamaliel. And for three straight Sabbath days here at Thessalonica, he went into that synagogue and he reasoned with them out of their own scriptures about Christ. And he preached the death of Jesus and he preached the resurrection. For example, 
he could use scriptures like the 53rd chapter of Isaiah because that entire chapter is about a suffering Messiah fulfilled by Jesus, of course. He would point out that this Messiah, he will have our iniquities laid on him. It pictures him as a sheep led to the slaughter, as a lamb dumb before her shearer, so he openeth not his mouth. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And so Paul would explain how Jesus came to bear the sins of the people and to pay the debt for their sins, to become a sacrifice for sin. And he just preached that right out of their own very books, in their own places of worship. He preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you see, Paul had dozens and dozens of prophecies out of the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And so systematically, he would just show who Jesus was and that he was the Christ. Now back to the narrative in Acts chapter 17. Paul has preached in the synagogue now for three Sabbath days, and the Bible says, speaking of the Jews, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Evidently, Paul didn't convert many Jews here in this synagogue, but he had much success among the Gentiles. But the Jews, even though they had that synagogue there, he had very little success among them. In fact, there were Jews in that synagogue that held him in great contempt, and, and really, they just hated his guts. They had rejected the gospel. They would not believe, and not only that, they persecuted Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, and took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city. When they had heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. So they accused Paul and those with him of turning the world upside down and that's true it's been said of Paul that everywhere he went he either had a riot or a revival and sometimes he had both and it was because of the reaction of people to his preaching and to the word of God that's really what caused the problem and you know when a person's honest and a person loves the truth when they are willing to reject all error and give up everything that they believed that was false in order to hold on to truth when someone does that and obeys God's word, the gospel brings peace. It brings harmony. It brings wonderful effects. But you see, when the gospel is rejected many times, it often brings hatred and evil effects from those who are not honest and who do not love the truth. One thing we need to understand as Christians is that the world is upside down already. It's been upside down since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God never intended for death to enter into the world and for there to be a separation between us and Him. You see, the world has been turned upside down through sin, and you and I are now going around talking to people about Jesus so that we can turn things right side up again. Of course, they probably don't really want that. But when somebody comes to know Christ, the world gets put right side up again. Remember, to the world, life is all about being happy. It's all about finding happiness. It's all about blocking themselves from hardship and being comfortable. How sad is that? I just want to be happy. 
No. We are trying to get to heaven someday. We're trying to find truth in Christ. We're trying to find true biblical joy. And so the Jews here, they stir the city up. They create a mob. They assault the house of Jason, and Paul can see the writing on the wall. The Jews are so mad and full of hatred, there is no use in reasoning with them. And I'm sure he's probably concerned with the safety of the other brethren as well. And so he leaves. And next, Paul comes to a city called Berea. We'll look at it again on our map. Berea lay about 60 miles southwest of Thessalonica. It has a synagogue there, and it seems that Paul immediately went there to preach to the Jews when they arrived. And here it is said that these Bereans were more noble than those at Thessalonica. Let's read Acts chapter 17, 10 through 14. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge of the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So the Jews back from Thessalonica, they have now followed Paul down to Berea. You see, these Jews weren't satisfied with running him out of their city. They have now traveled 60 miles to run him out of Berea as well. Quickly, the brethren there sent Paul away, leaving Silas and Timothy. Paul then travels down to Athens, which you can read about later in the 17th chapter whenever he gives that famous sermon there on Mars Hill. This story can serve us as a great example of how we as Christians should handle Scripture and how we can fall short in that matter as well. Luke says that the Berean Jews were more noble. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, but why? Well, there's two reasons. One, they received the word with all readiness of mind. They were looking for truth. Their minds were open. They loved truth, and they were ready and willing to look at it. And so the Jews at Thessalonica, well, they didn't have an open mind. They didn't want to hear it. But these Jews down at Berea, they did. They had readiness of mind. They were ready to hear it. Secondly, they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So when Paul would use the scriptures in the Berean synagogue and make his points about Jesus every day, they looked at those scriptures. They searched it. They investigated. What do those, pa what do those passages actually teach? And could this Jesus be the fulfillment of this prophecy or that prophecy? You see, they were willing to honestly look at Paul's evidence. And when you have people who are open-minded and willing to examine truth, you're going to have good results. And the results here were a whole lot different than up in Thessalonica. And so these Berean Jews are set forth as an example for us, for every person to imitate. Friends, if everybody would be like these Jews at Berea, the gospel would accomplish great things. But sadly, there are so many people who are closed-minded in this world, who are unwilling to look for truth. In your personal life, Maybe you've had conversations with people and shared with them the gospel or maybe invited them into church. And their response to you is something like, Zach, I, you know what, I'm satisfied with what I have. I don't want to look at what you're saying. I don't want to examine it. You see, I'm satisfied with my religion or my belief system. I like it. I'm happy. I trust what my preacher is saying. I trust whatever my political betters and political leaders are saying. They're not open to looking at the word. 
They're not willing to search the scriptures. They're not going to make that kind of effort. You see, there are a lot of religious folk out there who claim to live by and practice truth. But in all reality, they do not love truth because truth provokes change. So they're not really going to take it seriously and be earnest about it and really search it out and see if it's right because they don't want to give up their current lifestyle and practices where they're in error and it's exposed. They don't have readiness or mind or a hunger for truth. And folks, here is my two cents. Growing up in the church does not make you more noble. Having grandparents or parents or children in the church doesn't make you any more noble of a Christian. Being here at church every church service and sitting in your seat and checking off the box, that doesn't give you any more nobility in the kingdom of God than anyone else. Studying your Bible does that. Searching the scripture daily does that. Confirming truth does that. And Christians should have a zealous love for truth, a love for the scriptures. People in the world should look at us Christians and say, man, y'all are weird. We want to go out to the bar. We want to go out to the club. Let's go do this or that. No, that's not how I'm going to live my life. I want to go to church. I want to study my Bible. I love reading my Bible. I love being here with all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Folks, we've been born again. We have been redeemed. We are free. And what comes out in the heart of a Christian is suddenly this desire and this hunger that used to be there to please myself and to live for myself. And now, I want to live for God. I want to please Him. I want more of Him. I used to hunger for the things of this world. Now I hunger for the things of Christ. People, is that weird? Well, yeah, it's probably weird as it relates to the things out in the world. But it's right side up as it relates to the way you and I were created. We were created to know God, to love God, to serve God, to desire God. That's the way we were created. And sin turned that upside down. And we started living for self and desiring the things of the world. But when it comes to, when we, when it, when we come to know Christ as Savior, that gets turned back right again. And now our desire is for Him. Now I'd like to ask you another question this morning. Is our church more noble? Those of you who consider yourself a member of this congregation right here at La Prada Drive Church of Christ, are we more noble than other churches? Well, one important concept for us to take from Acts chapter 17, verse 11, is that of fact-checking our preachers. It says, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. If you don't hear anything I say this morning, please hear this. When Paul came into Berea, he had been run out of town by a group of Jews who refused to accept truth. They refused to examine the information Paul was giving them. And if they did hear any of his message, they rejected it. And then they turned around and told half-truths and lies about the Christians. They joined themselves to wicked men and caused a riot. Many of the Thessalonian Jews had no interest in truth, but the Bereans were different. They took Paul's words and arguments, they took their holy scriptures, and they searched those things out. They verified that Jesus was the Messiah by going through prophecy by prophecy and confirming that he fulfilled each and every one of them. They went back through each old book of the, of the Torah, the Old Testament, and made sure there were no contradictions between what the text said and what Paul was saying. What's that old phrase? Trust but verify. Do you do that in your Christian walk? Do you do that as a member of this congreg congregation? Trust but verify. 
Brother Rick Burge spoke on this the other night for us. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Are we sharpening each other? Do you take notes or go back and re-watch sermons on the church website? Do you double-check that passages we use are in the correct context or used properly? Are you willing to pull someone aside and say, Hey, will you send me your sermon notes? I'd like to talk to you about this passage. You know, lately... I have felt more and more like we live in a world that is consumed by information. That's all there really is. It's article after article, ad after ad, fact check after fact check. It doesn't matter what app you're using on your phone, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. It's just constant information, and I am often overwhelmed by it. You know, the other day I, I went to a Sunnyvale football game. Audrey was performing in the band. He did a great job. Zane was in town, so we went, and uh, Lane and Bethany were there as well. They sat right in front of me and Bailey. And over the course of this game, me and Lane are chatting. That's what me and Lane do. We just talk and talk, and usually it's about politics. And so I am just spouting off everything I've been hearing on the Internet and seeing about <coughs> politics lately. And Lane's listening. He's looking at me. And at one point, Lane pulls out his phone, and he gets on his search engine. He doesn't use Google. He uses DuckDuckGo. And he searches what I'm telling him, and then he turns his phone to me and shows me an article, and I was wrong. He fact-checked me right there on the spot, and Lane, I appreciate that. The truth is, we today are living in the age of information, and it is constant everywhere in your face. Did you know each one of these little apps on your phone, they are incentivized by big marketing dollars to keep your eyes on the screen constantly. And they will do whatever they can to keep you swiping and scrolling. Thank you, Brother Jeff, for these stats I'm about to go through. According to Forbes magazine, Americans spend an average of 58 minutes a day on Facebook, or 325 hours a year. Instagram was the second most used service, and it remained most popular among Gen Z users who spend almost 53 minutes per day, almost 297 hours a year. While Snapchat was also popular with the younger crowd, who racked up 50 minutes per day on the app, or still 277 hours a year. On a yearly basis, look how much time we spend at church compared to the rest of our lives. It's just a sliver of time. The average Gen Z young person spent an average of nine hours a day in front of a screen of some sort. And folks, I'm just as bad. I spend nearly all day every day in front of a screen of some sort, whether it's my phone or my computer for work or YouTube or Netflix after work. I mean, that's just the truth. And this morning, maybe you don't consider yourself in the younger crowd. Maybe you're not as tech savvy and on your phone all the time. But you still got to ask yourself, how much time did you spend, do you spend watching TV or Netflix or watching sports? It's probably just as bad. How much time did you spend yesterday watching college football? So yes, we live in a different world today than we lived 100 years ago, where people are consumed by these devices. We're consumed by it. Many are consumed with the flesh and pleasures of this world. But at the same time, folks, we live in the age of information. Each and every one of you have the inspired word of God at your fingertips at all times. At a moment's notice, you can look up any verse any character in the Bible, any subject, instantly. 
Do you know how many hundreds and hundreds of years of Christians would have given all that they had to have what we have? The full, inspired, inerrant revelation of the one true and living God made readily available to us at a moment's notice. Do not take this for granted. Fact check what you hear from this pulpit. Fact check what you hear from preachers online. Fact check what you hear from your weird friend at the Sunnyvale football game. <laughs> Don't take the word of God for granted. Search the scriptures daily because we need you. As a church, we need you to help contribute. We need you to help us all be more noble. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So the Bereans were a great example of us, of being more noble, of being lovers of truth. Well, you know who was another, who is another lover of truth? Jesus Christ. He was the most noble of them all, and we see this clearly throughout the New Testament. Jesus knew scripture like the back of his hand. He, he truly loved it, and he lived it, thankfully for us. One example of this is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the famous story about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And in Matthew's account, we read, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and their hands shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto them, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. He's saying, Get out of here, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Jesus knew the word of God like the back of his hand. And we see that here when he faces temptation. When the devil tries to draw him in and entice him, what is Jesus' response? It is written. We should handle temptation in the same exact way. Satan says to Jesus, command that these stones may be made bread. Jesus responds with, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. Satan says to Jesus, cast thyself down. Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Lastly, Satan says, fall down and worship me. Jesus again. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 through 14. Folks, when we face temptation, which we all will at some point, if we know the scripture, if we have searched it daily, if the scripture abides and dwells in us, then we too can respond with, It is written. Be gone, Satan. It is written. Be more noble in your Christian walk. Get that word into your life. Center your heart and mind on the Bible. Allow yourself to be cloaked in the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I will submit to you this morning, I don't think... You can put on the armor of God without studying the scripture and without a love for truth and a desire for it. Those are requirements. So, gird up your loins with truth. That means tighten up your belt with truth. Put on that body armor, that chest plate of righteousness. Wear the gospel of peace as shoes on your feet. How can you know the fullness of the gospel if you don't study your Bible? And always pick up that shield of faith. Use it to protect yourself from the fiery darts of the devil. Strap on the helmet of salvation and wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Scripture after Scripture, we can rattle off about the importance of personal study. For instance, John chapter 5, we see Jesus rebuking the Jews because of their inability to see that He was the Messiah. John chapter 5, verse 39, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. It's important for us to remember, it's not necessarily the daily study of God's word that makes us more noble. It's not memorizing scripture that makes us more noble. It is the quest for truth that makes us more noble as a Christian. And I'll say that again. It is the quest for truth that makes us more noble. But how can we find truth if you don't search the scriptures? John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32 Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. We ought to prove everything we hear. Test it. Hold fast to it. Hold fast to what's good. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's not enough just to study God's word. It's not enough just to memorize scripture. We must rightly divide the word of truth. James chapter 1, verse 21, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive the meekness, the engrafted word, which is, a, which is able to save your souls. Folks, this word can save you. It can transform your life. If you let it. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Folks, the Bible does not teach that you must be a biblical scholar. You don't have to be a historian. You don't have to be a textual critic. You don't have to know everything. But you do need to be able to give an answer as to why you believe what you believe. Why you have hope in Jesus Christ. If someone asks you, why do you go to church? Do you have an answer? If someone asked, why do you believe in Jesus? Was Jesus even a real person? Do you have an answer? If someone from another church down the road asked, why do you guys talk so much about baptism? Do you have an answer? We must always be ready to give an answer. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Like I said, like I said folks, we live in the age of information. We are bombarded by it around every corner. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. We must protect our hearts and guard it with the word of God. And lastly, before we close this morning, I'd like to share some thoughts from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church from the books of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. At the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Every athlete exercises self-control. And what that means is they, are, they have learned as athletes that there are things in life that aren't going to be good in the preparation for the competition that they participate in. Some of you were athletes. Some of you may still be athletes. For some of us, that's a long, distant memory. But you know, there, there was some discipline that is involved. The more serious the athlete, the more serious the discipline. They have to be concerned with things like nutrition and what they're putting in their mouth. They have to be concerned about getting rest and getting enough. And they have to be concerned about training. So they have to exercise self-control in order to be faithful to the goal of competition. That's their goal. The goal is to compete, and they wanted to do a really good job of competing. Being faithful is our goal, too. Now, we're not being faithful to competition. We're being faithful to the Lord. That's our goal. So how does Paul do that? Well, Paul tells us in the 27th verse, but I keep, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. He says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. And that phrase, bring it into subjection, or keep under control in the ESV, the English Standard Version. You know what that literally means in the Greek? It means to be a slave driver. That is to enslave, to bring into subjection. That's the picture that Paul is talking about related to his body and his mind. He says, I lead it around like a slave. And what Paul knows that sometimes I think we forget is that slavery is going to happen in your life one way or another. Either you are going to be a slave to your body or your body will be a slave to you. So when Paul talks about discipline here, he's talking about living in such a way that his body is not in charge. Rather, he's in charge of his body. Because when the body's in charge, we become slaves to our fleshly passions. And Paul describes the life of someone who is ruled by his body in verse 26. Look with me there again, and then we'll close. He says, I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, you see, he's talking about the person who's ruled by their flesh. He explains that there is this aimlessness to their life. Aimlessness in simple things like homework or chores. Aimlessness in their work. You know, they're just clocking in and clocking out. Aimlessness in their relationships. Who do you surround yourself with? And what, what activities do you and your friends participate in? And probably most often... There's an aimlessness in their study of God's word. Aimlessness in their quest for truth. How about you this morning? 
Are you more noble? This morning, I want you to understand this lesson really isn't so much for you as it is for me. I recognize a deficiency in my life when it comes to the topic of nobility. When is the last time you opened your Bible? Do we search the scriptures daily and confirm the truth that's in God's word? When's the last time you confirmed the accuracy of a statement made from this pulpit? When's the last time you went to the Old Testament to search things out like the Berean Jews did? The lesson is yours this morning. I really appreciate your time and consideration. Today, if you feel like studying the Bible is something that's missing out of your life, I think we can all probably relate to you. If you'd like to chat about studying the Bible, please come chat with me after church. Please go chat with one of our leaders. But maybe you'd like the prayers of the church to help you in that endeavor. We stand ready to pray with you in any prayer request that you might have. Or you might recognize this morning your need for more of God's word in your life, in your walk. Maybe you're tired of dragging your feet through the muddy waters of this life. Maybe you're tired of being blown this way and that way by the winds and doctrine of the world. Maybe you're tired of the burden of sin on your life. If you are ready to seek after truth instead, Christ stands ready to redeem you. He's ready to make you whole, and, he, and we extend that invitation for you to be a part of the kingdom of God. If there be one of either case, we ask that you come to the front. Take a seat on this front pew as we stand and as we sing. Page 853. When we walk